the guerrillas attacked the camp with a company of US paratroops dropped into the camp and 70 amphibian tanks came ashore from the lake just north of the camp. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we have an interesting one, actually. Mm. A young un, an area of the war we haven't particularly covered. No, a sort of special request, actually. We had someone get in touch with us and specifically ask if there had been any Prisoner War Escapes from the Pacific Theatre in the Far East. And I have to admit, there weren't as many. No. I've touched upon previously as to one of the most glaringly obvious reasons why, which is that Westerners tend to stick out a bit in Jungle of Burma, yes. for example. Yes, being not particularly native to the area to therefore mix in with the civilians. Precisely, yes. And also not particularly familiar with the terrain, the flora and fauna of the area, and how to potentially survive in those circumstances. And we're also talking about trying to escape over much larger distances than we're discussing in continental Europe. Absolutely. And particularly with large sea crossings and everything else. So exactly um, a more challenging area. Exactly. So that that's why we haven't covered the Far East and the Pacific Theatre and escapes from that area quite so often, because there just aren't as many escapes to cover. Absolutely. Nonetheless, we have one here. We do. At special request, as I say. So go ahead. Who is he? Right, so today we're looking at midshipman Peter Noel Vasey Newsom of the MV Tantalus of the Blue Funnel Line. So this is a merchant seaman. Okay. And a young one as well. This actually happened over the course of his 17th birthday. Right. So he was 16 when he landed in Manila, which okay. is where this is taking place, because we're looking at the Battle of the Philippines. Okay. Not one I'm massively up on, I no. would admit, so I've had to have a look at this. This is a, an early part of the war as well. I mean, we're talking Christmas time of 1941, mm-hmm. but a little bit on Newsom. So, as I said, this was taking place on his 17th birthday. His birthday was actually Boxing Day, mm-hmm. and this all started on the 25th, so this started on Christmas Day, 1941. But he was originally from Coombe Lane in Wimbledon. I looked up his house, because we got this exact address, and it still stands. It's quite an impressive house actually great not um, far from rains park station i think i would have to take your words on that one yeah what i mean by that is it's at the southwest end of wimbledon so it's kind of more on the border of wimbledon towards rains park okay so it's at the other end from perhaps more famous tennis courts but yes yeah, so he was a student and he had joined the merchant navy just seven months previously Okay. Now, the particular company he joined was the Blue Funnel Line, as it was mentioned. So the Blue Funnel were a British shipping company that were founded in 1866. And they was quite well established. A well established one. And it, was, and it was really running the Shanghai, Hong Kong, Liverpool route. So that would explain. So he had gone on a, a trip from Liverpool out to the Far East as part of delivering freight and things like that. Now, it was a bit of an unfortunate shipping line because they'd also been doing this during the First World War. And they lost 13 ships during the First World War, but they went on to lose 30 ships in the Second World War. Okay. And basically what ended up happening was that after every war, they'd end up having to replace the ships they lost, which they modernised, because as part of looking at this, the MV Tantalus actually appears three or four times during mm-hmm. the course of this particular shipping company. Yeah, so they would then modernise and update their fleet. They eventually went bankrupt in, I think, about the 1980s or the 1990s, so unfortunately they're not around anymore. But Presumably because um, they had to keep paying for new ships that were being bombed. Potentially. He had set sail from Liverpool and had headed out to the Far East, so he is now in the Philippines. Now, the Philippines 
Philippines is an interesting part of the war because we're obviously looking at America entering the war on the 7th of December 1941. Mm. And the invasion by the Japanese forces started on the 8th of December 1941. Now, it was interesting that in prelude to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the Americans had actually been building up their forces within the Philippines because they were expecting something like this to happen. Now, ultimately... Japan's invasion of the Philippines is generally considered to be the worst military defeat in US history. Mm-hmm. Around about 23,000 American military personnel and about 100,000 Filipino soldiers were either killed or captured, but basically met some of the aspects of the Japanese objectives for invading the the Philippines, which was firstly to prevent the use of the Philippines as an advance base by the Americans. Well, they kind of got that. I mean, the the invasion was basically over by May 1942. Additionally, what they wanted to do is they wanted to acquire a staging area and supply bases to enhance their operations against Guam and the Dutch East Indies. They wanted to secure lines of communication between occupied areas in the south and and the Japanese homelands. And basically their last plan was to limit any Allied intervention should the Japanese wish to launch a campaign into Australia and the Solomon Islands by basically getting rid of any resistance that was there. So that was the main aim of what they wanted to do. Now, as I said, they started their invasion on the 8th of December and that was a landing force that that landed in the country. And by the time we get up to Christmas, they're basically starting the aerial bombing campaign against the major cities, including Manila, which is where we pick up the story of, of Newsom because he was in Manila at the time at Christmas. It's a bit unfortunate timing given that he was British merchant seaman. Yes. So he's not in any way, shape or form connected to the American military whatsoever. No. So he wasn't at this point a target per se. No, and I think we see that a little bit in the initial stages of the mm. reports because there's kind of like a little bit of hanging around. But sadly, he's not a man of many words, as we'll see from this, because he starts off by saying, on the 25th of December 1941, we were bombed three times in Manila Bay. We had no direct hits. That night, we moved the ship close to shore at Bataan. We were empty, having already delivered supplies to Singapore and Hong Kong. Well, that makes sense on the routes that they were mm-hmm. done. On the 26th of December, so now his 17th birthday, In the early morning, we burnt all the code books and abandoned the ship. We manned the lifeboats and landed on the shore. The ship was eventually sunk by bombs at noon that day. For two days, we waited for word from the British consulate in Melilla. Now, that's interesting. Mm. Because it kind of, to me, that says that a lot of confusion, a lot Mm. of chaos. We are three weeks into the invasion, so they know it's the war is on Mm -hmm. and has reached that part of the world. But it seems to be that there isn't really much of a plan of action should anything have actually happened. So he goes on to say, On the 29th of December, I and deck boy Boswell of my ship hitchhiked to Hermosa, where we were attached to the American army as GIs. That night, we returned to the ship's company to inform the chief officer of what we had done. While we were there, the bus arrived from the American Red Cross with instructions to take the ship's company to Manila. We left that night and spent the remainder of that night at Belanga. So that's interesting, because having just said he was in no way, shape or form attached to the American military, within three days he signed up as a GI. He has, and then he's been picked up by the American Red Cross and taken off somewhere else. Yeah. On the 30th of December, we continued our journey to Manila, where we were quartered in the American YMCA. On the night of 1st of January 1942, he tried to get back to Bataan with a, a number of other individuals, but found that the bridges had already been blown outside Manila, so they returned to the YMCA. On the 2nd of January at 7 o'clock, the Japanese came into the city and made the YMC their temporary HQ. 
We were kept on the top floor that night, and on the 3rd of January, we were transferred to the Bayview Hotel as prisoners of war. We were all removed to the Santa Tomas prison camp, where all civilians from the district were being collected. We remained there until the 14th of May 1943, and we were transferred to the camp at Las Banos. Now, that strikes a lot of Empire of the Sun when I read that. Mm. Now, I've not seen the film for a number of years, but obviously the collection of civilians into a camp was considerable, and he basically was there for 18 months, Mm -hmm. effectively. Mm -hmm. So with nothing else to report in that time. So yes, you're right. So he then picks up on what camp conditions were like. We have talked a lot about camp conditions in the European camps. We have, yep. Which could be hugely varied depending on how well established they were, what the location was, what the commandant was like, the head of security, what the guards were like, how often they received Red Cross parcels, all this sort of stuff. For obvious reasons, because we haven't touched any Far East POW escapes before, Hmm. we haven't really touched upon the camp conditions in the Far East, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that they are notoriously awful. Yeah, absolutely brutal. And... We have discussed before terrible treatment of prisoners of war by the Nazis and Italians, for that matter, from beatings through to limited access to food, even in the case of admittedly fairly extreme examples, but of course most famously after the Great Escape murder. In that case, that was the Gestapo. But those tended to be extreme examples. I think the key difference here is what was extreme in Europe is almost commonplace in the Far East. And Newsom makes that pretty clear actually, and when he touches upon camp conditions. So, he says, On the 15th of February 1942, 3rd Officer Fletcher and Weeks, both of the Tantalus, and Laycock, an Australian civilian resident in the camp, escaped and tried to reach Bataan on a native boat. Now, I have to confess, I'm not overly familiar with what the native boating and shipping patterns and designs were in the Philippines, so I looked it up. And it is known as a banka boat, B-A-N-G-K-A, and it's basically an outrigger canoe, so you get the canoes that have the balance on either side. Oh, yes. That's an outrigger. So it's one of those, that's essentially what it is. Now, the smaller ones are just basically a canoe, and the bigger ones have sails and that sort of stuff. The smaller bankas were used for short distance journeys fishing that sort of thing while the larger ones might have as i say have a sail but would still retain the outrigger and in this case it's likely that they used the larger banker because they needed it for the greater distances to cover so you might island hop on a small one but to get as far as somewhere like Bataan, you'd need a larger one yeah now the advantage of that was you could cover these distances but of course the larger size makes you more susceptible to recapture you're a bit more obvious So having tried to make their way to Bataan on one of these native boats, one of the banker boats, they were picked up only a few hours later by a Japanese patrol boat and brought back to the camp. Now he says once they were brought back, they were tortured and then the following day taken out and shot. Now, the one thing you do tend to see is, A, if you make an escape and are recaptured, the worst you can really expect, typically, is some time in solitary confinement, possibly up to a month, which is significant, but solitary confinement, bread and water, maybe the Gestapo will rough you up a bit. The odd extreme example, as I said, whereby it was worse, but it was the odd extreme example. Completely, yeah. This is just a standard escape attempt where there is no judicial process whatsoever. They are brought back, they are tortured, and they are shot. Mm. And this is quite an extreme example and contrast to what we usually see in Europe. Three witnesses were allowed to see this, which is almost quite surprising in a way, because if you're committing a war crime, you almost don't want people to see it. On the flip side, you're also looking for it to be a deterrent. Completely. And so you do want people to go back 
and tell the prisoners of war about what's happened and to discourage them from repeating it. That's right. And he actually names the three people who were witnesses, which was a G.R. Pedder of Smith Bell & Co., so presumably a civilian, Earl Carroll, also a civilian and was American, and then uh, Reverend Griffiths of the Church of England. So although this is just one example that Newsom has given, it's interesting that that's what he picked up on and that he felt the need to mention this. It's one example, it's a small example, but it's also quite an extreme example. But it's also not totally out of the ordinary either for what we now know as fairly standard treatment and behaviour in the prisoner war camps in the Far East. But indeed, he would not have been aware of that potentially, because obviously he's been captured right at the start of the Japanese occupation, so there's unlikely to have been word spread from other camps as to how people were being treated. So this report obviously being right at the end of the war might have been his way of saying, this is what happened at my camp. No, you're absolutely right that he may well have not have known that. And this was written in July 45, so the post-war war crimes are still, at best, relatively new knowledge. Certainly not to the depth that we are now aware absolutely. and the extent to which they were committed. So this would have been potentially even part of building a narrative, building evidence of the war crimes that were committed during the war on prisoners of war. Completely. Because, of course, when this is written, the war is not yet over against Japan. Not at all. It still had a month to run. Yeah. So his narrative skips forward from February February 42 to August 43, when he states that the Japanese ordered them to all sign an oath that we would not attempt to escape and that we would obey all their commands. Now, this was resisted by the representative committee from the prisoners of war in the camp, and they fought against this for about two weeks, but eventually they all had to sign it basically under duress. Now, it's not well known that things that are signed under duress automatically are adhered to all that well. So it does suggest to me that the Japanese are actually a little bit desperate by this stage and that they're not necessarily maintaining control all that well in the camp. So in January 43, so a little bit earlier than the oath that he's just mentioned, in January 43, all American officers and enlisted men of the American Armed Forces, which of course Newsom now is, despite being from Wimbledon in London, he did sign up as a GI. He did. So he is now technically one of the American Armed Forces, were ordered by the Japanese to report themselves to the Commandant's office. Now they also had six Royal Navy ratings for the purposes of DEMS. Now, I wasn't actually aware of what DEMS was, D-E-M-S. No, no, me neither. So I looked this up, and it was defensively equipped merchant ships, which, in effect, not wholly dissimilar, if you like, to the old privateers, Hmm. whereby, because they were so reliant on the merchant navy for securing supplies coming in, the Royal Navy effectively seconded servicemen to equip merchant ships defensively so with guns armor that sort of thing and to man these guns so because the merchant seamen weren't trained servicemen so they basically seconded royal naval seamen Mm -hmm. over to the merchant navy in order to be able to defensively protect them now the the other way they handled this was often to sail in convoy yes as they definitely did in the battle of the atlantic but this was another way to make sure that at least the merchant ships had some way of defending themselves and so these six royal navy ratings were advised to give themselves up as their skipper captain morris thought they might jeopardize the rest of the crew if it was later found out that they had not given themselves up I'm inclined to agree with Captain Morris here. The Japanese behaviour up to this point does not suggest that hiding anything is going to be well received by them. Yeah. So everyone who handed themselves in were taken out and had to serve two months in Japanese military police HQ, which is in the old Bilibid prison. They were then transferred to the main military prison camp and then later transferred to Japan itself. Having already discussed the fairly brutal treatment that we have mentioned, 
he specifically says, and it goes back to what we said about this may have even been to feed into building of evidence against war crimes. He then specifically says, the following five men were the only Britons that I can recall having been killed or died whilst in the custody of the Japanese in the Philippines. Now, he says it is only five. He is also narrowing it down to Britons, so there could have been more Americans. But nonetheless, the fact that he felt the need to single them out Mm. is in and of itself notable and slightly concerning. So... Fletcher, who was one of those captured and executed following the escape on the banker boat. Oh yes, yes. Um, he was one of those three. Weeks, who was also tortured and executed following that same escaped attempt. Now he includes Laycock as well, who was actually Australian, but was serving in the British Merchant Navy, so he's been included as part of the British here. A gentleman called Williams, who was about 65 years old. So as a civilian internee. Yeah. So this is quite interesting. When I was thinking about this, it made me actually kind of question the concept of what a prisoner of war actually is, because we often think of it as servicemen, people who have been participating in the war, Mm. have not been killed, but been captured and therefore become prisoners of war. But of course, if you're a civilian in a location where war is taking place and you're of perhaps service age, as in you could join up, and we see this a lot more in the Far East than we do in Europe, but it's not uncommon for civilians to be taken prisoners of war. It typically means servicemen, but it's not unknown for civilians to become prisoners of war. So that is actually a really interesting point, because of course we had a lot of German and Austrian nationals here. The Americans had quite a lot as well. And when the war broke out, there was something like 70,000 UK registered and residents, Germans and, and Austrians over here, which all got filtered through the Home Office for checking, mm-hmm. obviously, because some were going to be more of a threat than others. And as you say, some could be of military age and things like that. But I, I believe they were split into those that should be interred those that didn't have to be interred but could be restricted in some way and those that were special cases so yeah so i think all around the world it was common to lock up some civilians who could potentially be a threat should uh, it be deemed and of course in this in the same situation we've got potentially british australian and american national civilians living in the philippines that were then part of this camp system Mm -hmm. that were taken prisoner of war because they were not servicemen but because they were prisoners of war you know by by circumstance rather than by service if you like and I must confess, although I was aware of it, I hadn't really thought of it like that before. And it was it was actually reading this escape report and reading particularly Williams and the next one, a guy called Duggleby, mm. both of whom were civilians. Mm. They, they weren't even in the Merchant Navy, I don't think. They were just civilians who were caught up because of their nationality and therefore became prisoners of war. Yeah. So the fifth and final Briton that he says was killed by the Japanese was an AF Duggleby who was taken out of the camp and executed by the Japanese on Christmas Day in 1944. So I read that and thought, what on earth had they done? It must have really annoyed them to achieve that distinction. And it was for being implicated in the sending out of money to the guerrillas. Now that will do it. Mm. And he was also the leader of the British community in the camp. So he was also quite a prominent individual within this camp. And interestingly, he mentions the guerrillas because they've come to play quite a significant role in Newsom's story later on. They do, yeah. So to Newsom's escape... So this took place on the 8th of January 1945. So having been captured at the end of 41, we're now into 1945, early 1945. But he's basically spent three years in captivity before he made his escape. On the 8th of January 1945, at 0800 hours, the Japanese left the camp and told the committees that they were on their own. On that basis, I'm going to assume that the Allied forces were now closing back in around the Japanese. 
And for three days, the prisoners of war were at large and able to collect food, but they were advised by their committee not to leave the confines of the camp as there were still Japanese soldiers in the vicinity. So in effect, going too far away from the wire put you at risk of being too close to perhaps a trigger-happy Japanese soldier. And we know that in some extreme cases, they hung around until the 70s. So this was certainly not an idle threat. Yes. Now, everyone in the camp thought that the Americans had landed about 30 miles south of the camp, which does tie in with what I said a moment ago about how it suggests the Allies were at least getting close again. Nonetheless, four days later on the 12th of January, the Japanese returned at 0400 hours in the morning, confiscating all the food and taking down all the flags that they'd put up. And the guards were returned to the sentry houses. Now this clearly riled up at least some of the prisoners of war, including Newsom, because at 1000 hours in that same morning, so only 16 hours after the return of the Japanese captors, Newsom and a W.L. Taylor, who was an American civilian, escaped. So, as I say, clearly got a bit riled up by the return of the Japanese. So he escaped by going through the barbed wire fence in the outer compound and hid in a banana plantation about 20 yards outside the camp for two hours. First of all, love the touch of a banana plantation. Absolutely. But also, I kind of love the fact that it's only 20 yards away. He hasn't exactly gone far. It's a little bit like the episode earlier in the series when the escaper was just hanging around the outer perimeter of the camp, sweeping up the floor and picking up yeah, rubbish. Make, and Making it look like he was working yes. and, and supposed to be there. Yeah. yeah, and then when no one was looking, just scarpered. It's not dissimilar to that, so he's only gone 20 yards away and then hidden himself for a couple of hours. After a couple of hours, two Filipino boys of about 18 came past them and they asked them to take them to the nearest guerrilla camp. So they took them about five miles away to a guerrilla camp where they stayed for about a week. And during this time, eight more civilians escaped and came and joined them. And again, he lists them. So it was a W.R. Schaefer, an American merchant seaman, E.J. Lloyd, a British banker, G.K. Arnovich, who was a British evacuee from Shanghai, C.H. Ford, an American student, Jay McKinnon, who was an American insurance agent, so I bet he was banter around the campfire in the evening, R. Reynolds, a British store manager, Jay Connors, an American mining engineer, and then one other who you couldn't remember. And then he also mentions two more who were shot by the Japanese while trying to escape, which was a G. Lewis, who was a Pan-American Airways pilot, and a P. Hell. Great name. Good strong, name. Strong name. Doesn't say what the first name is. No. Who was an American mining engineer. So that's two more that we know have been shot summarily by the Japanese for trying to escape. And the reason for referencing this is he teamed up a little bit with the first one that I mentioned, W.R. Schaefer, because it was he and Schaefer that ultimately found out that these weren't quite so much guerrillas as bandits. And so having discovered that these weren't quite the partisans or guerrillas that we see in, say, Yugoslavia or Poland, you know, the forests and all this sort of stuff. After a couple of days there, so on the 20th, they left and started to make their way south to try and reach the island of Mindoro, which was already occupied by the Americans at this stage. So the Americans are closing in by this point. After about two hours, they were caught again by these bandits and confined to one of the huts in the village that they were occupying. So they seem to have fallen in with the wrong crowd. Yes. As a parent might say. Yes. Nonetheless, two days later, on the 22nd of January, they got away again, and this time they went north instead, to a town Kaloyun, where there had been an encounter between the guerrillas and the Japanese. Now, this is only about 10 kilometres away from Los Banos, which is where the camp that they were in. So having reached this town, they found it was completely empty, utterly deserted, and so they went further north to the town of Pila, which is a further 15 kilometres away from Kaloyun, because they'd heard that there was a large concentration of active guerrillas, not just bandits this time, but a large concentration of active guerrillas in the area. 
Indeed, to the point that the guerrillas were occupying several towns by this stage. So the guerrillas had been broken up into four bands, one commanded by an ex-Chinese newspaper reporter called Ong, and the others by ex-Filipino army officers and cadet officers. So with the possible exception of the journalist, you could argue that these ones were actually being led by trained military personnel. So it feels more like they're now joined up with a much more proactive group of guerrillas. And indeed, when they joined up, they were given the honorary rank of majors. On the 5th of February, so about two weeks after having joined this second guerrilla group, Manila was liberated by the Americans. By the 17th of February, other guerrillas had liberated other parts of the Philippines. And on the 18th of February, Schaefer and myself with five guerrilla officers crossed the lake called Laguna de Bay in another of these native sailboats, one of the larger ones. Now, Laguna de Bay is internal lake upon which Manila sits. When they landed on the other side, they were taken by car to what is now downtown Manila, where they met a major Vanderpool of the American army. Now, for some reason, I thought I'd look him up. Turns out he's a bit of a legend. Really? Yeah. Oh, go on. Interesting guy. So this Major Vanderpool of the American Army was Major J.D. Vanderpool. Didn't manage to find out what the D stood for. He was from Oklahoma and grew up during the Great Depression. Okay. In a state that was seriously hit by the Great Depression. So he decided to join the army as a relatively safe, secure source of employment. Mm -hmm. Not the worst decision in the world that you can make at this time. And he joined up in 1936, presumably as a squaddy, as a GI. And he rose through the junior ranks to reach staff sergeant in the field artillery. And he must have stood out a little bit because he was then nominated for officer candidate school. And he eventually earned his commission in April 41. Now, having been commissioned as a junior officer, he was assigned to the 8th Field Artillery Battalion, which at that point was stationed in Hawaii. Nice posting. Not bad. Not bad. Interesting in mid-1941, with what we know is going to come. Yes, it's going to get busier. Mm. So he was active around the time of Pearl Harbor. He was in Hawaii. He actually survived Pearl Harbor and would go on to fight at Guadalcanal, rising to Deputy Chief of Staff of Intelligence during the campaign in the Solomons. Now, in preparation for the invasion of the Philippines, MacArthur, who was of course in charge of the American forces at this time, was looking for people who had worked in intelligence to link up with the guerrillas. And Major Vanderpool, as he was by this stage, became one of only 16 chosen to go in and, quote, do what you think will best further the Allied cause. Now that's a pretty broad (laughs) remit when you're going in and dealing with guerrillas. Yes. So, Major Vanderpool went in and lived with the guerrillas himself. So he didn't just link up with them and be a point of coordination. He actually went in and lived and fought with them. Wow. Which was crucial to his success because he was able to gain their trust and respect in a way that you wouldn't if you were just a person that you went and met with periodically. And that in turn helped him to overcome various parochial political differences. So we've seen before with partisans whereby they've all got different, you know, you sometimes get the communist partisans and the the right-wing partisans and all this sort of stuff and never the twain shall meet even though they're both fighting the same people. So he was able to help overcome some of these just by being a trusted individual who had no political affiliation to either of them. And he became quite well known to the Japanese to the point that they put in a lot of effort to capturing him and he managed to evade capture from them for several months despite being identified as a major target and the Japanese even deemed him as a highly effective operator against them. Now he continued to fight in the Philippines and after the war he joined the Central Intelligence Group which was the precursor to the CIA. 
Okay. Becoming an expert on Korean military build-up. <laughs> and was ultimately to return to the front line, leading partisan groups, would you believe, uh, yeah, exactly. in the Korean War from December 51 until April 53 during the Korean War. Wow. So he's got a bit of a habit of preempting what's going to come in military history a yeah. little bit. You know, first he ends up in Hawaii as Pearl Harbor is less than six months away. He then ends up in the Philippines and then joins what effectively is the CIA specialising in Korean military build-up not long before the Korean War. After the Korean War, even then, his career had not ended. Oh, wow, really? Because he would go on to become instrumental in the development of armed helicopters, which became significant during the <laughs> Vietnam War. God. And he was to retire, I think I'm right in saying he was to retire as a lieutenant colonel. Wow. Which, having joined as a squaddy in 36, this guy's a legend. Yeah. For someone who I thought, I'll just look him up. Yeah. To discover all of this. About, I was like, this is brilliant. And Newsom is right slap bang in the middle of this guerrilla warfare, working with Vanderpool as a 20-year-old, basically. Yeah. And he's right in the middle of all of this. That's fantastic. It's brilliant, isn't it? And Newsom's story was to continue to get interesting. It does, actually. I yeah. love this bit. <laughs> so... Vanderpool, who of course, as we now know, has a lot of authority and seniority at this stage, he's basically been given a broad remit to go in and just make life impossible for the Japanese. Meddle. Meddle, Meddle yes. yes. Interfere. Interfere. Um, stir things up a bit. Newsom states, he gave us about 200 Tommy guns with ammunition and after a short conference as to how we could best liberate the prison camp at Los Banos, we returned with six American scouts to our guerrillas. On the 20th of February, two US Army officers from the 11th Airborne Division came to our town with aerial photographs of the prison. Bear in mind, this is only six weeks after his own escape. So on the 21st of February, so the day after they've done the reconnaissance scouting, three more prisoners escaped and came straight to our camp at Pila. So on the night of the 22nd, we set off to liberate the camp. And at 0700 hours on the 23rd of February, the, the guerrillas attacked the camp with a company of US paratroops dropped into the camp and 70 amphibian tanks came ashore from the lake just north of the camp. So they basically surrounded it with guerrillas, paratroopers and amphibious tanks. It's, it's incredible. It's fantastic. With Newsom effectively leading from the front yeah. to liberate his own prisoner of war camp. I mean, we're not going to come across a story like this again, are we? No, not, not many, certainly <laughs> it's, it's not. It's a special Far East one. And by 1000 hours, so only three hours after the attack, all prisoners numbering around about 2100 were in the tanks returning across the lake. It's brilliant. It's superb. So for the next two months after this liberation, so liberation, as I say, took place on 23rd of February. So for the next two months until just after VE Day, which less relevant in the Philippines, but until the end of May. Newsom was attached to the US scout team of about 10 men in Pila, where he took charge of the Filipino guerrillas and operated under direct orders from the 6th Army HQ, head of special intelligence. So he's now effectively in charge of a group of guerrillas answering directly to senior officers in the 6th American Army. Yeah. Great. And he's still like 20. Yeah. yeah. Their work consisted of reconnaissance and combat patrols and we had radios all the time and were able to use the radios to relay back to Pila where the HQ was located. About mid-April the American forces came into his territory and he returned with the scout team to their base at Subic Bay which is east of Bataan. So he's effectively been kind of relieved of duty yeah. because 
rather than having to rely on the guerrillas, they've now got sufficient force of numbers from the American regular army to be able to relieve of duty. Because, of course, he's not a trained GI. He's no. effectively he- taken up arms because he didn't particularly like his captors. Yeah. And after two more weeks of rest, he reported to 6th Army HQ at San Fernando, where they put him in touch with Captain Nicholson, a British army officer in Manila. And it was Captain Nicholson who ultimately arranged for Newsom to, first of all, travel to San Francisco and then arrived back in the UK on the Queen Mary on the 8th of June, 1945. It's incredible, isn't it? Brilliant. And the downside is, I mean, again, he's unfortunately one of these lowly ones that there's no information post-war on him. I mean, obviously the war was over, Mm -hmm. and I cannot imagine that somebody who's just spent the last three, four years in internment in a Japanese prisoner war camp, that they're going to ask much of you to carry on fighting in the last, say, month of the war. Probably not. Um, But unfortunately, I have tried and tried and tried to find anything, either whether we carried on with with the shipping company. I could find nothing, I'm afraid. Nothing at all. Don't know what happened to him. Would love to know what happened to him. Mm. I mean, what a story. Great story. There's every chance. I mean, he could, in theory, still be alive today. I Mm -hmm. mean, so he could still be out there. I'd love it if he was still out there or if somebody does know. Yep, sadly, nothing. Had to draw a blank. Which, again, as, as is so often the case, is a great shame because he had a brilliant story to tell. In some ways, his escape was the quiet part of his military career because it was after his escape that it really lit up. Yes. I must admit, I would also be interested to know if he did have any involvement in any war crimes, trials that took place after the war, because he certainly was able to provide eyewitness testimony and certainly there is written evidence right in front of us that states that he did witness at least several war crimes taking place of Japanese treatment of British prisoners of war. Absolutely. But, I mean, where else are we going to see a situation where somebody who spends years in their prison camp to escape and then return to liberate their own camp with guerrillas and support of (laughs) amphibious tanks? tanks. We're not going to get that I I very much doubt it. So, well done, Newsome. Well done, Newsome. And what a great request in from a listener to have us look this one out. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.